have you ever had this experience where you're going to meet someone for the first time uh, let's say you're going to pick them up from the airport or from a train station and you've been told about them but you've never seen them and I'm sure when that happens to you and you're going there to meet them you've you've built up a picture in your mind they've been described to you you've built up a picture uh, you've got your expectations of what they'll be like and then this person arrives and well you never expected them to be like that we all have our presumptions. We all have our prior expectations, including about God, including about what God is like and how God works. And we are very often misled by our presumptions and prior expectations. And you find that today in Luke chapter 23. Let's turn again to Luke 23 verses 35 to 39. Luke 23, verses 35 to 39. We've been doing a series through Luke's gospel and we've got to Jesus being crucified. And some people really focus their descriptions on the harrowing physical sufferings. It must have been for Christ being nailed to that cross. And yet, strangely, the gospels don't. In fact, Luke's gospel here, just like the other gospels, passes over it in just this short phrase that says in verse 33, there they crucified him. Instead, Luke focuses on the people mocking Jesus. And here in the our verses, verses 35 to 39, we have three groups of people, very different groups of people. We have religious rulers, the soldiers and a criminal. And although they're very different, they all say almost exactly the same thing to mock Jesus. Let's look at it now. The first is verse 35. The religious rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Then verse 37, we have the soldiers they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then lastly, there was a criminal next to Jesus. And he said, verse 39, he hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Do you see how they're nearly identical? Two of them say, if he is the Christ or aren't you the Christ? One says, if you're the king of the Jews, which is the same thing as the Christ. And they all say, save yourself. Can't you save yourself? Why don't you save yourself? Well, three different groups saying the same thing. God must, through Luke, be telling us there's something here to take notice of. God, through Luke, must be telling us there's a common problem here that we must beware of. What have they got wrong that we need to watch out for? I want to answer that in three ways this morning. And that's providing the structure but don't get me wrong, this isn't all about here are things we get wrong, here's what we must do. It's really more about let's see Jesus rightly. Let's not get him wrong as they did. Let's make sure we've got our eyes on the real Jesus. But we're going to structure it around what did they get wrong. Here's the first thing, expectations. They got their expectations wrong. Now, children, do you like superheroes? Seems to be down through the generations. Children have been into superheroes. Can you think of any? 
I'm not very good at this. I can think of Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman. And I could probably think of a few more. But anyway, they're the obvious ones to me. Now, people back then were expecting a bit of a superhero. They were expecting someone called the Christ to turn up. Christ meant promised king, the greatest king. And they expected him to be a bit like a superhero. Now, of course, they didn't expect him to fly through the air or to smash rocks or to climb buildings. But they did expect him to be powerful and impressive, a mighty warrior, someone to admire as a hero. They expected God's God's work to fit their structures. This Christ, he'll be one of us. He'll come from our elite, a, a religious ruler from our circle of people, fit our structures. They expected God's work to fit their agenda. So for the first group, the religious rulers, their agenda was make Israel great again. They didn't wear red caps, but their agenda was make Israel great again. For the soldiers, it was simply prove yourself to us. And for the criminal, it was a rather more desperate agenda. Rescue me, I'm nailed to this cross. And they expected God's work to fit their timescale. In other words, now. Do it now. Do it when we demand it. And so this Jesus dying on a cross was a he was the total opposite to their expectations. They expected power. He looked weak. They expected impressiveness. Well, he was dying naked on the cross, a disgrace. They expected success. Well, there's a total failure. They expected an insider. He was rejected as an outsider, totally the opposite to what they expected. And so they hurled their insults and mocking at him. He wasn't what they expected, but if only they had seen, he was far better than they expected. God become man, an ordinary man, yes, a serving man, a weak looking man, a man who wouldn't succeed by raw power. By using his power as God to avoid suffering and any difficulties. No, God become man who would succeed by trusting and obeying. How can God trust and obey? Who is there for God to trust? Who is there for God to obey? Well, he was God the Son who had willingly put himself under God the Father. And he wasn't going to save himself by his power. No, he was going to trust his Father And he was going to keep on obeying his father. And even this save yourself, there we have it, verse 35, save yourself. There we have it, verse 37, save yourself. And then again in verse 39, save yourself. It was part of Satan's temptation thrown at him. Go on, stop trusting your father. Take it into your own hands. Save yourself instead of trusting him to save you once you're dead. And so Jesus, not saving himself, shows him to be the Christ who trusts and obeys. Luke's gospel is especially keen to show us Jesus as the Christ who doesn't fit our expectations. So if you go right back to the beginning, well, well, actually all the way through, I should say, Luke shows, shows him to be the God of the small. So back at the beginning, it begins with he comes to 
an obscure working class teenage girl. And then when he's born, oh, the good news is first announced to these obscure despised shepherds. And then through his life, we find him repeatedly coming and speaking to obscure and despised lepers and women and outcasts. But Luke also particularly wants to show him as the God of the big. He's the God of the small, but the God of the big, too. Because Luke's gospel has as this theme, the kingdom of Jesus is going to is going to get to the ends of the earth. And Luke's writings in Acts end with Jesus as king being asserted in the imperial capital, Rome. He's the God of the small, but he's the God of the big. He is better than they expected, better than any expectations. Now, if any of you listening are sceptical about the Bible, why should I take notice of this book? If any of you are sceptical, this should make you think, actually. Because Jesus, God become man and succeeding by trusting and obeying and by dying on a cross, not by raw power. It just didn't fit any of the ways of thinking back then. The Romans, what did they admire? Military strength, raw power. The Greeks, what did they admire? The clever philosophers and self-reliant superhero-like gods. The Jews, what were they looking for? Well, uh, an elite religious leader who would make Israel great again. If, if you were going to make up a religion back then and make it successful, you wouldn't make up Jesus, a weak looking man naked on a cross. Nobody would want that. Where would you get that idea from? Well, the answer is he wasn't made up. And he wasn't an idea. He was God become man. And you should believe him. And all of this is telling us, be careful of going by your expectations. Get your expectations in line with the cross, because God's work doesn't tend to fit our structures, our agenda or our timescale. That's true on the church wide big scale. So, for example, in the late 1940s and the early 1950s in China, the missionaries were expelled, booted out of the country. And the church was so weak and downtrodden on, under the heel of an oppressive authority. And yet it was through that weakness and trouble and even looking like it had all gone wrong that God grew his church. It's true on the personal scale. Some of us heard last Thursday evening from Jeremy Marshall. He had been CEO of Credit Suisse First Boston UK and then president of England's oldest private bank. And then it's all brought to an end by cancer and by going blind for a while. And yet that trouble and weakness has been God's way of reviving his faith and using him to bring the gospel to many others. You see, God's work tends to be in line with the cross of Jesus through weak looking troubles and not in our time scale. And that should reassure us. It should reassure us as COVID-19 brings illness and death and job loss and financial insecurity. It should reassure us as our attempts to spread the gospel look so pathetic and we think, is it really worth it when the need is so big and our attempts are so small? 
should reassure us God uses the small. He uses the weak looking. He uses our troubles. And it should guide us. It should guide our expectations. Uh, with lockdown, loads of uh, church activities are online. And I was looking at a church in America called Elevation Church. Now, I have to be careful what I say because I don't really know them very well. But as I looked, ah, oh, it, it, it was so showy. It seemed so self-congratulatory. They seemed so impressed with themselves. And anything like that, we should be really suspicious of. A church like that, we should be really suspicious of. To turn it back on ourselves, if we are like that, we need to ask ourselves big questions. God's work tends to be in line with his weak-looking cross. They got their expectations all wrong and so they mocked Jesus. But here's the second thing they got wrong. Secondly, they got the scripture wrong. In other words, the Bible. Now, here are three groups. Do you remember them? Verse 35, the religious rulers. Verse 37, the soldiers. Verse 39, this criminal. And they all got wrong what the Christ would be like. Which one would you least expect to get it wrong? Which would you least expect to get it wrong? I reckon the religious rulers. You know, the soldiers are probably Romans. They don't know Jewish religion. The criminal, well, do you expect the criminal to know all that much? The religious rulers, though, you'd expect them. Why? Why should they get it right? Well, you might say they should have known the scripture. In other words, what we call the Old Testament. It said the Christ would suffer and die. For example, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, as well as plenty of other places they should have known. The, these people read the Bible. We know they read the Bible. They went to the synagogue every Sabbath and read the Bible. How could they miss what it said? What do you reckon? How could they read it and miss what it said? Well, I think the answer is it's easy to read your agenda into the Bible. I think they must have read their agenda into the Bible. Have you heard of a thing called confirmation bias? This is a thing many people are accused of these days. Apparently people, well, especially with the Internet, where you can choose which news do you listen to, which opinions do you read. People take notice of the things that confirm what they already thought. And they don't read the things that disagree with what they already thought. They want their bias confirmed. And these rulers did it with the Bible. The warnings of judgment on Israel. That doesn't fit with make Israel great again. Let's just quietly ignore that. The examples of God working through weakness. The prophecies of the Christ being a suffering servant. They didn't fit what they expected and so... Maybe without even realising it, they just sweep that quietly under the carpet and move on. And that means that they missed out. Because Jesus was, was better than their misreading of the scripture. Let's have a little look at how actually their scripture, the Old Testament, comes up even in these verses here, even in these events that they are watching unfold before them. Have a look at verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right 
and the other on his left. He's numbered with the transgressors, the criminals. That is fulfilment of Isaiah 53 verse 12. Move on to verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, gambling over his clothes. That is fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. Then just the next verse, 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself as he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And we've seen it again in 37 and almost the same in 39. And all this mocking and even the actual words they used to mock him, the actual words are fulfillment of Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. Let's look at one of the actual words they use. Verse 35, they call him the chosen one. And it's fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1. I'll just give you one more example. It's in verse 36. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. And that offering him of the wine vinegar is fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. If, if only these religious rulers who, who read the Bible would open their eyes and see the Bible is being fulfilled right there in front of them. And it's saying to them, this Jesus is the Christ who is far better than you ever expected. Because those scriptures I've just said about Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Isaiah 42, they were scriptures that said God's servant, his promised one, would suffer, but he would rise victorious and he would rise in power and he would bring blessing beyond their imagination to the world. If only they if only they'd read the scriptures rightly. So let's make sure we avoid their mistake. Are you reading your expectations into the scripture? Or are you getting your expectations from the scripture? Which way round are you doing it? Children, I wonder, have you got sunglasses? Sad we don't need them these days. Hopefully the sun will come back soon. But have you got sunglasses? And when you wear sunglasses, what colour do they make everything go? You can get different shades of sunglasses. Some are a bit yellowy, some are a bit bluey, some are a bit browny. And when you've got your sunglasses on, sometimes you forget, don't you? Well, I do. I'm driving along and think, oh, dear, it looks a bit gloomy today. Then I remember oh, I've got my sunglasses on, lift them up. Oh, good. It's nice and sunny. You forget you've got them on and they're colouring your view. Well, we can read the Bible like someone wearing sunglasses. Our expectations, our personality, the values of our society can colour how we read it. And, and we can even almost unknowingly twist, twist it to suit us, ignore the bits that don't suit us. And we've got to work at avoiding that confirmation bias. It doesn't help if you just read your favourite bits. Please don't stick to your favourite bits. Read it all, including the hard bits. Read, read, read large chunks of it. It doesn't help if you read a chapter and, oh, yeah, you've read the whole chapter, but then you focus on the verse that fits with what has been on your mind. Well, that may be helpful, but don't just do that, because then you're likely to just be noticing the bits that fit with how you're already thinking. 
Instead, read big chunks. Read it in the order God has given it. Think about what the author's emphasis is, not just what your reaction is. Let the people God chose to write it shape you rather than your reaction shape you. Look for the bits that jar with you. The bits that are out of line with our society's values or even Hollywell Church's values. And then let them turn your values and expectations around. We've got to work at having scripture shape our expectations, not our expectations shape how we read scripture. Because we want to avoid being like those people. Do you remember? We're considering these three groups. They all mocked Jesus. If you're the Christ, save yourself. Because they got three things wrong. Well, probably more. But here's the third one I'm going to finish with. The third is the most important. Saving. Saving. Above all, they got wrong. Who needed saving? These religious rulers they and, and the soldiers, they see this weak man. He's helplessly nailed to a cross. Uh, they have the power. He is weak. Their cause has won. He has lost. He needs saving from this tragedy that's overwhelmed them. But they're not on the cross. They've got their feet on the ground and they're doing fine. There's nothing they need saving from. Or so they think. It's similar with the daughters of Jerusalem. Did you notice then when Mihaila read us the passage? Daughters of Jerusalem in verse 27 to 31. You've got these women. And as Jesus is walking out to the execution ground, they're watching and they're wailing and they're crying. Because they're seeing a man to be pitied. They probably know it's an injustice that he's going to be executed. And they're and they're sad and they're pitying him. There's a victim that they see in front of them. But Jesus says, no, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. God's judgment is coming on Jerusalem. And the people who are going to be caught up in it, they are to be pitied. It's judgment for rejecting Christ. And it's going to come in a very specific way. They're going to be given 40 years to repent, but sadly they didn't. And so in the year 70 AD, the Romans marched in, destroyed the city, killed the people. Who needs saving? Not Jesus, no. It's those who've rejected Jesus. They're the ones who need saving. They've got wrong who needs saving. They've got wrong how to be saved. You can see that if you look more specifically at the criminal. Have a look at verse 39 again. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So, yes, he he sees he needs saving because it's obvious in his case. He's nailed to a cross and he's going to die in the next few hours unless someone saves him. How did he think he could be saved? Well, sheer power. Power to pull out the nails, get him off the cross and overpower the, the guards. Well, if Jesus can do that for himself, then maybe Jesus could save him too. Jesus, save yourself and us. But no, it's by staying on the cross that Jesus is going to save others. It's not by saving himself, but by sacrificing himself that he's going to be able to save others, including one of the thieves who's actually next to him. 
It's not going to be by an act of sheer power, but by an act of love guided by principle. The principle that sin must be paid for, that forgiveness is costly and that justice must be done. And Jesus is going to satisfy all of that by not saving himself. So again, see, Jesus is better than anything they expected. We're here in Luke's gospel and Luke's gospel has has raised this issue of what will the Christ be like right back at the beginning. We find Jesus announced as the Christ right back at the beginning. Children, do you know who announced that Jesus had been born? Think of your nativity plays at school. Think of Christmas time. Who announced it and who did they announce it to? Well, it was the angels, wasn't it? And they announced the shepherds. I'll read it to you. The angel announced to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. They said, this baby is Christ. How do you know he's Christ? What can you expect Christ the Lord to be like? Well, the angel then said, this this will be a sign to you. This is how you'll know he's Christ the Lord. You'll find him on a throne with a crown. No, he said, you'll find him lying in a manger. <laughs> well, that's not what you expect to find Christ lying in a manger with the sheep uh, wanting to eat their food and there's a baby in the way. No, but you see, he said he's a saviour, Christ the Lord. And because he's because this Christ is God stooping to save us, you find him at the start in a manger, a lowly place where the shepherds can come and find him. And because Christ is God stooping to save, you find him at the end on a cross. He's gone from the wooden manger to a wooden cross. Because the theme of Luke is, I'll give you the theme verse, I hope you know it, chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man, that means the Christ, it's exactly the same really. The Son of Man, the Christ, came to seek and to save what was lost. And so he proves he's the Christ by staying on the cross, not saving himself so he can save others. He proves he's the Christ by self-sacrificing, not self-saving. And that is where it hits home to us. Because have you seen that you are the one who needs saving? Have you seen that you need this to be for you? Have you seen that Luke 23 is not written so that you pity Jesus? Are you like the daughters of Jerusalem and you hear this story and it's a moving story about a man dying. But if you read it properly, you see it it wasn't written to move you to pity. Luke spares the details of the sufferings. Because he's not writing to move your emotions to pity. He's writing to show you, you need pity. Because if you're not safely in this Jesus, you've got God's judgment coming to you. And you need to be saved. And it's real. I was once uh, involved in some street evangelism, talking to a man on the street and... He said, "Uh, yeah, well, what you're saying is true for you, but it's not true for me. We make our own truth. I said, how can you say such a thing? 
If the doctor tells you you've got cancer, you don't say, well, that's, that's your truth, but my truth is different. If the bank says you're 500 pound overdrawn, you don't say, well, that's your truth, but my truth is I'm 600,000 in credit. He said, yeah, of course, of course, because those things are physical. Those things are real. We're talking religion. That's psychological. Oh, no. God's judgment isn't psychological. Those daughters of Jerusalem that Jesus warned, they didn't meet a psychological problem. No, they were met by the Roman army coming in with real judgment of God, real death. Judgment of God on our sin, on our disobedience to his laws, especially on our rejection of Jesus, is no mere psychological problem. It's, it's real. It's real. We are the ones who need saving. Jesus didn't need saving. He knew what he was doing. He was doing it to save us. And you need God become man and choosing not to save himself so he could save you. And he's done that. He didn't come down from the cross. He stayed there until he could say it is finished. And that means you can rely on him. That means he's the one you need. That means he's done all that you need. So will you trust him? Will you trust him? He doesn't require of you uh, that you perform something great, that you do amazing deeds. He's performed something great. He's done the amazing deed. He just requires you to turn from your way and humbly trust him. Will you do so? Because if you do, he's ready to welcome you. He won't disappoint you. He's ready to save you.